This is Phantom Power. Ears racing. Race. We think of it as a visual phenomenon. But race has sound, too. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Hi, sisters. Hey, James. Hey, everyone. Hey. When you heard those voices, did you give them a race, a class, perhaps? Some kind of assignation of character? And if so, why do we do this? Where does this discriminating ear come from? I'm Mac Haygood. And I'm Chris Chee. Today on Phantom Power, we listen to race. Or to put it more correctly, we examine how we are always listening to race. Our guide is Jennifer Lynn Stover, Associate Professor of English at the State University of New York, Binghamton. Stover is the author of The Sonic Color Line, Race and the Cultural Politics of Listening, a book that argues that white racism depends just as much on the ear as it does the eye. She shows how listening has been used since slavery to distinguish and separate black and white, and how African-American artists and critics like Richard Wright, Leadbelly, and Lena Horne have identified, critiqued, and pushed the boundaries of this sonic color line. And Chris, when I spoke to Jennifer, she reminded me of a story that really shows how high the stakes of this kind of listening can be. You know, I talk in the, in the opening of the book about the case of Jordan Davis. It happened November 23rd. 47-year-old Michael Dunn told investigators he felt threatened at a gas station. Parked side by side with an SUV full of teenagers, the alleged gunman complained they were playing their music too loud. Jordan and his friends were playing hip-hop at the gas pump. They were driving, they had their music on, they were getting gas. Gas stations, in theory, a transitory shared space um, where we all come in with our music, we pump our gas and we leave. Detectives say Dunn confronted Davis, who was in the back seat, and told him to turn the music down. The white man in question felt a proprietary access to the soundscape, both that if he decided it was too loud, it's too loud for everybody there, that his sensibility should be catered to, that there is a way that a gas station should sound, and hip-hop is not part of that. And when they said no, he saw that as, as aggression. Dunn's attorney says his client thought he saw a gun, so he pulled his own weapon and started shooting. Started shooting. Shot into the car. Firing at Firing least eight, eight shots. Eight shots. Um, and, and killed a, a, young, a young man. Investigators never found a gun in the teen's car. In her book, Jennifer Stover has a term for the way Michael Dunn heard Jordan Davis at that gas station back in 2012. The listening ear. The listening ear helps us get at what's really happening in a case like that. The listening ear is a term that I use to think about the way that racialized listening practices come about, the way that they accrete over time. 
I was also trying to think about how whiteness in the U.S. has become aligned with citizenship, what it means to be a full citizen with all of the rights and privileges thereof and have them be respected. And, you know, that, that, that this has become soldered to not just a white visuality, um, but a white way of being in the world. And where does this white way of being come from? At times, it's a form of, of distancing. It's a way of have, drawing a line between what is music and what is noise and putting, say, hip-hop on the other side of that line. Now, I submit to you that you're going to have to get people like Jay-Z, right, Kanye West, all of these gangster rappers to knock it off. And then not just doing that, but then associating the sound of hip-hop with a long history of stereotyping of black masculinity as dangerous, as outsized, as... Listen to me, listen to me. You gotta get where they live, all right? They had idolized these guys with the hats on backwards. And then the sound itself becomes a stand-in for talking about black masculinity and excluding black men from neighborhoods, from um, equal treatment under the law. And the, and the terrible rock, uh, rap lyrics and a, and a drug and all of that. Our moment is shifting now, and I think, you know, we are having more overt um, racial threats. But say three years ago, conversations were being had through these, these sonic codes. And so part of what the book is to kind of expose, you know, when we talk about hip hop as being loud and as, you know, as being, you know, culturally, when we, we hear these conversations about, about hip hop, what are we really talking about? It's these gangster rappers, it's the athletes, it's the tattoo guys. So this, I, the, the, the listening ear is also very, for, for white people, white men in particular, a very kind of proprietary. It's about the imposition of power. I think the thing that I appreciate the most about your book um, is that it addresses this, this racial dynamic, this, this kind of judging by listening that white people mm-hmm. do. Something that I think any American really, no matter what their politics are, they would at least admit that this does exist, right? But yes. when it gets discussed at all, which is, is pretty rarely, um, it generally gets reduced to this debate about Ebonics and so-called standard speech. Mm-hmm. But what, what you seem to be arguing in this book is that we use a prejudicial and even you know white supremacist form of listening that involves way more than accent or dialect and that this actual type of listening is central to American racism itself. Um, So maybe could you talk a little bit about your concept of the sonic color line and and what that does? Yes. Um, Thank you. I think that's a really excellent uh, interpretation of of my work. And uh, yeah, I think that the, why I chose that title um, drawing on um, Du Bois's concept of the color line was this the way in which the sonic color line brings together and helps us understand the linkages between the prejudicial listening that happens in terms of speech, in terms of musical production, musical taste, musical desires, um, and also 
the way in which we think about soundscapes and space um, and, and really the sonic color line ultimately becomes a way to understand how we create spaces that are exclusionary. America's free and we have these legal, legal protections in terms of space. But if, if race, experiences of race and racism are internalized through the senses, we all walk and experience space in very, very different ways. 11 women kicked off of a wine train in Napa Valley after complaints they were being too loud. But the women say they were not booted for being rowdy. They say they were kicked off for being black. We made it, y'all. Look at us. We ready to get on the wine train. What started as a joyful event for 11 African-American book club members quickly grew sour, even before they left the Napa wine train station. And she said to us, I'm going to need you to lower your, your, the noise level needs to come down a little bit because you're being offensive to some of the other passengers. Some 45 minutes into the trip, they were told they had to leave and would be escorted off the train. And when that happened, a further indignity. We had to walk all the way through all the additional five cars to be able to get off the train. So they took us and they paraded us through every single car with all the passengers watching us. It was humiliating, degrading, and that's the part that I will never, ever, ever forget. It can say that it's open and that it's, it's diverse and it's accessible, but because of the way that experiences of sound are can be fractured, can be very different, you know, these spaces, you know, can, can be very actively exclusionary um, toward people of color in ways that can be, you know, hidden or covered over. And, and so I, you know, I kind of started there, like where, you know, trying to understand where we're at in the contemporary moment, but then needing to go back historically to, to document and, and trace that. And so we tend to think about sound as something that just is and something yes. sounds a certain way. But what you're really emphasizing here is that we, li we all listen through these ideological filters, right? So a as, a, yes. as a guitar player, you know, I think about this sometimes in terms of like effects pedals, right? So mm -hmm. we, lis we Ooh, listen like through these metaphor. different, we listen through these different distortions and delays and we don't really realize that we have these things in our signal chain, right? We think we're listening yes. to a clean, natural yes. signal, but there's no such thing as that. Um, and so I, I think a couple of questions for me Absolutely. come to mind. Like first, what, what do you want white people to do with that knowledge? Um, it, it, I guess we could just start there. Like what kind of intervention would you like to see your, your book make with, with white folks? That's a really important question. I mean, first, um, as you put it, right, just this calling attention to the fact that listening is not a natural process. For folks that work in sound studies, it seems very basic, right? In some ways, that's the foundation of, of, of our field. I'm, gonna, I'm going to paraphrase Hari Kunzru. Um, uh, we, I just finished teaching the book White Tears with my class. And, you know, there's a point where he says, whether or not you believe in race, race finds you. And mm -hmm. I think this is part of it, right? That the book is is written to counter colorblindness and the ideology of colorblindness. That if you don't see race, quote unquote, um, uh, you know that it doesn't exist. That that there's a certain element of 
white people, often very liberal white people that, you know, don't no longer believe in race. Um, and yeah, race has been definitely, it's been proved as a, you know, a scientific fiction for over a hundred years now, but the materiality of racialization is everywhere around us. And so getting white people to not imagine themselves at the center of the human experience, um, that the way that they hear is not the way everybody hears, and that the way that they hear is impacted by race, is impacted by this idea of what whiteness is and how to inhabit whiteness. Um, one of the ways I think that sound, at least in terms of producing white racial identity, works more powerfully than vision is because it allows a feeling of whiteness, that, that it makes whiteness and race real for white people rather than an abstraction. The way we talk about visuality and race is often that whiteness is invisible, that, it's a, that race is marked onto othered bodies. But with sound and hearing in white ways and sounding in white ways, it actually makes it this very material experience. And because it's been so associated with Americanness, The ear is the human organ the public speaker is most likely to try to impress as he makes a speech. And naturalize this way you know, the, the white way of hearing has in America for many decades and, you know, if not, you know, a century and a half or more, the, the way to be as a human. People can be interested in new ideas when those ideas are expressed in well-selected words. But did you ever consider how many jobs depend on your ability to express yourself to a group of people? Whether it's the foreman on a project, or a judge on the bench, or a salesman, it's important to be a good speaker. And when you speak well, you get along better with people. Whether it's persuading them to come along and have fun at a wiener roast, or trying to be a better citizen at school or in the community. And so challenging that and, and getting an opening of multiple perspectives and multiple interpretations of the same sound is, is really important. And even like, so the idea say of, of a quiet neighborhood as the goal. The suburbs there's a way that, that race and class meet in that and that brownness, blackness is associated with noise and sound and the way that neighborhood soundscapes are policed, the way that noise complaints are called on neighbors that often start a whole chain of potentially dangerous legal, um, legal implications and, and problems. These, these conversations need to be opened up, not imposed, um, based on a white middle class sensibility. And so really kind of shaking up um, and realizing the, the partiality of white listening for white listeners is, 
it sounds simple, but it's actually quite difficult to do. Um, and I, I work on that in my teaching all the time. As a literary scholar, one of Stover's techniques is to engage with African-American literature as a storehouse of historical sound. One example being her close reading of Richard Wright, author of Uncle Tom's Children, Black Boy and Native Son. I've come to think of certain kinds of musics in particular as being sonic traces of listening experiences. Um, and DJs and, and um, as, as communicators of ways of listening. So I realized when I dropped into to Richard Wright's Native Son, I was receiving similar transmission of listening practices. An alarm clock clanged in the dark and silent room. A bed spring creaked. A woman's voice sang out impatiently. Those are the first three lines of Native Son, all establishing the scene through sound. Bigger Thomas moving through the streets of 1940s, late 1930s, early 1940s segregated Chicago, we were as readers invited to listen as hard as we can to how Bigger heard the city and realizing that many of his cues and many of the most important metaphors and, and uh, imagery in the book comes through sound. That Bigger can walk across the street from his extremely noisy apartment complex in the, or tenement, I should say, kitchenette really, in, the, in, the, in Bronzeville in Southside, and then move across the street to the Dalton Mansion in the, in the very wealthy white neighborhood of, uh, I believe it either, in Hyde Park, and everything becomes quiet. And this seems very natural. We've come to naturalize that inner city neighborhoods are noisy, that wealthy neighborhoods are quiet. But what Wright does is to show us, right, that it's the overcrowding of the neighborhood that makes it noisy. It's the lack of protection or controls on industry and conditions of segregation create that metallic noisiness, um, something that Laura Polito calls environmental racism. That's where the factories get put. That's where the, the, the um, incinerators are. That's where the, and then when he moves across the street, that this quietness is not a, a natural state of affairs, but it's extremely constructed. And that buffer is set up so that um, the residents do not encounter or have to think about the black neighborhood down the street. But they, in fact, own the building that Bigger lives in. And that, you know, the, and that invites us to think about that these two spaces are connected, that the sonic color line appears as a division, but it's really this, this link um, that we need to pick up in here between these spaces. Hey everyone, it's Mac Haygood. Here at Phantom Power, we are so fortunate to have generous funding from the Miami University Humanities Center and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And among other things, this means that we don't have to implore you to buy a new mattress or join a Sock of the Month Club. If you're a regular podcast listener, you know what I'm talking about. So luckily, we don't have to do that. We do, however, have one small ask. 
Just go to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating. We'd really appreciate it. It's a great way for the people who are funding this show to know that folks really are listening to it. And it's also a great way for more people to learn about Phantom Power. Thank you. We're going back now to Max's conversation with Jennifer Stover, author of The Sonic Color Line, out on NYU Press. And as Jennifer mentioned earlier, her book attempts not only to explain racialized listening in America, but also to trace its history. And she does so by assembling a historical archive of texts. Slave narratives of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs, newspaper reviews of black and white opera singers in the 19th century, the writing of W.E.B. Du Bois and Richard Wright, musical recordings, radio dramas featuring the Jubilee singers, Lead Belly, Lead Better, and Lena Horne. And by examining these as texts, Stover shows how the sonic color line evolved and how African-Americans documented, theorized, and resisted America's dominant cultural politics of listening. There are these different moments that you point out where it becomes really important to listen for race to, to people who are invested in racial divisions because the paradigm of the visuality of race actually gets undermined. So the first of these occasions in the book is has to do with just the mere fact that so many white slave owners were raping the African American women on their plantations and you know having mixed race children and then we get into the the one drop conception of of blackness and 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 all of this where it becomes difficult for people to discern mm-hmm. by the eye what race someone is, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, and the Fugitive Slave Law, I think, was also part of that, too. When the nation in the 1850s at the same time was then, you know, the entire nation was turned into essentially slave territory in part by that act. It also caused a a discernment of, right, can you detect if someone's slave or free by listening? And so those two things, I think, working together began to create this language of what blackness sounds like. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid was telling people privately that Barack Obama's campaign would be helped because he was, quote, a light-skinned African-American with no Negro dialect unless he wanted to have one. Should he resign? I don't think so. The president has accepted the apology, and it would seem to me that the matter should be closed. And that blackness and race and sound were then associated. And then also at the same time, then, what does, what does whiteness sound like? So, so yeah, this sonic color line at this point, it's doing more than just defining and judging what it means to sound black. Also, it's this subliminal process by which whites are figuring out what it means to sound white. Yes. Right? Without, without even consciously thinking about it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this happens a lot in, in music and in studies of music that when we talk about race and sound, it's about blackness, it's about brownness, it's about the other as having a racialized sound. The sonic color line is doing other kinds of work, right? So now it's not simply a way of sort of disciplining and identifying black bodies and black voices. It also becomes this 
this way of essentializing them, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this way of making them exotic, of sexualizing them, of making them profitable to white people. So I, I'm thinking here about, you know, um, the great musician, Hudi Ledbetter, better known as Lead Belly. his relationship with the folklorist and record producer, John Lomax. Can you talk a little bit about their relationship, those two men? Well, I actually want to start with with Leadbelly. Um, and he actually hated that nickname. Um, and that's why in the book, I most often talk about Leadbetter and use use his, his name because you know, that nickname was given to him in prison. And Lomax insisted on it because um, he saw... Um, him being, you know, his imprisonment as a kind of racial authenticity. Um, John Lomax was a folk collector and grew up in Texas. And he would travel, he worked for the Library of Congress and various other organizations and saw himself as the great preserver of black folk culture. And Lomax, quite disturbingly, saw prison um, as a as a as a way of preserving folk culture. That he would often travel to prisons because the convict system, which really is an extension of enslavement and a new form of enslavement, where black men would be picked up for petty crimes, quote unquote vagrancy. Um, et cetera, et cetera, and then imprisoned for inordinate amounts of time and then used as um, on a chain gang as labor. And so he would see them as they were segregated and cut off from the radio and all of these modern technologies that he felt were ruining the folk culture. You know, he didn't like blues and jazz that that were being played on the radio or mass produced through records. Um, he actually saw these kinds of musical exchanges as um, corrupting this kind of purity. But then what does it mean to, to you know, so little concern for the men that were, you know, producing these? So he just saw them as producers of music, not as... Not as um, not as human beings, you know, he didn't do anything to try to dismantle the, the convict lease system. And so when he saw, so he met Leadbelly there and, you know, quote unquote, discovered him as a great talent. And he would often, you know, force Leadbelly to perform in prison gear um, that actually, uh, in my research, I found hadn't been used in the state of, of Alabama for a decade because the 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 even the government at the time found it to be dehumanizing so you know so Lomax felt that he was and this is where the essentializing comes in and and this is part of the naturalizing of criminality with blackness um, was constructing a racial image Um, he felt he was reflecting it and representing it but it was a very dangerous thing to do this is the early days of something that persists to this day, which is white men sort of assessing and determining what authentic black musical culture is. Yes, I'm feeling a kind of possessiveness and ownership over this authentic image. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I still I hear it today. I of lamenting that you know African American people had turned their back on the music of John Coltrane or whatever in favor of hip hop. I mean, this is still something you hear all the time. Yes, and I mean, even and then in hip hop, what is the real hip hop and real hip hop? Right, what is the real hip hop? -hop, Is political? (laughs) It is, you know, it uses samples. It. Red Belly um, was an incredible musician, an incredible, um, you know, he had, as it's been reported, over 500 songs committed to memory. He really viewed himself in the tradition in the South of what's called a songster, that he would travel from place to place, that he would be very attentive to his audience um, and play songs that, that would, you know, that they would relate to. That And he would switch this depending on where he was and you know, he very much wanted to be a pop star in the vein at the time of Gene Autry and had his own goals and desires and, and really wanted to cross musical boundaries, um, but was bound through a contract with Lomax until, until 1939. And this contract actually prefigures what are called 360 deals now in the music industry where um, Lomax had control over where he played. You know, Lead Belly couldn't book shows without Lomax's permission. Um, in addition to the fact that Lomax made the lion's share of the profits, um, this idea that he controlled Lead Belly's entire image and entire, you know, that, that doing anything that Lomax would deem inauthentic was, you know, was him really, again, exerting this kind of, you know, back to the listening ear, this proprietary ownership over Lead Belly the person, not just Lead Belly the music. The music becomes a way to uh, express this desire and need for control and containment you know, of, of black music and through this kind of fetishizing. And that, I think, is what really shifts from the 19th century into the 20th century, is that consumption of blackness for the white listening ear becomes about a certain kind of pleasure that in the 19th century was a different experience, right? There was almost immediate dismissal of of black music as noise, where in the 20th century, if it's noise for many people, it is this, this it has profitable currency because of because of the sonic color line and because of the pleasure for white listeners of transgressing without losing their position in in the racial hierarchies in the of the US. Yeah, and and you know, Ledbetter goes on to be covered by pretty much I mean, it it's it's astounding how influential his music was. Um, you know, Frank Sinatra uh, Led Zeppelin did a version of his song Gallus Pole. Hangman, hangman, and if you listen to Led Belly's uh, original. Why did you bring me the silver? Why did you bring me the gold? Why did you bring me the wife? Give me one together for you. Kind of blows Jimmy Page away, and he's doing it on a 12 string guitar, which just seems so difficult. Yes. <laughs> Why did you bring me the from the gallant gold? 
And the, there's been a, a lot of discussion in England about the, the Skiffle revival and that that mm-hmm. was part of the circulation of Lead Belly. Lead Belly's music to England, George Harrison cites him as, who also plays the 12 string, play the 12 string um, sometimes as, as an influence in that regard as well. And none of which monetarily are enough. Um, Lead Belly has very poor health, um, died, mm-hmm. died young. Um, he you know, was very much on the economic edge um, his, whole, his whole life. And so he never really saw any kind of, I mean, props are amazing. You cannot eat props though. But it, it, it's interesting because Lomax was attracted to Lead Belly because he heard something from the past, right? Or at least he thought yes. he did. But Lead Belly's influence shows that he was playing something from the future, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, even into the grunge era, like a Nirvana covered, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And if you just listen to the guitar part on that song, it just sounds so modern. That it, it completely makes sense that a band like Nirvana would use it. And Cobain said that Lead Belly was very influential on on the band. And and uh, you know, and I'm I'm of the same generation as as Cobain. And I remember, you know, being in high school and sort of obsessively listening to Lead Belly and Robert Johnson records in high school and and hearing something that, you know, felt really true to me and or and vital, painful, authentic, right? And and this is where I, I get some confusion um, because is this a way that white men have found empathy and resonance with black experiences? Or is it actually a reinstantiation of the sonic color line, a way of marking what is supposed to be an authentic black sound? Um, I'm just asking for a friend here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I think I mean there's there's some question about you know back to and part of the the sonic color line is about the commercializing of and the 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 capitalizing of of black pain what happens when you turn black pain into into a commodity and yeah. and that it's it, and i think that's 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 really central to this authenticity is a form of arrest yeah. and a form of of limitation of of um forcing a kind of boundary and you know but it's also a way of bracketing right if you can bracket that power is from the past then it erases the con- the, the contemporary connections, um, and I, it's it's a, it's a challenging question. Like I say in the book, and I actually dedicate at the beginning I to the book to Fishbone, who is a yeah, I love Fishbone. Oh, I love them too. And like they, I mean, they were as I say, and they're like my first and funkiest critical race theorist. <laughs> Chase y'all through the night. So go ahead, burn your cross away from women in the night. Cause the table 
through Fishbone and the way that, that listening to Fishbone opens up my ear to not just many different kinds of music, but the potential and the fusion and connection between them. And that's the very reason why the music industry failed Fishbone in a sense. It was never consistently ska or funk or heavy metal or, you know, the band really found these points of intersection and merging of the sounds that we can't label you and therefore we can't, you know, sell you. So, so music has that, that potential, and it, because it has that potential to open up listeners' ears. That's why the sonic color line's there. It's to contain that power that that music has. I want to skip forward to this second moment when the listening ear and this sort of listening for race becomes very important. Um, so, so there was the earlier stage during slavery and trying to discern, if you couldn't discern visually what race someone was, trying to listen for race. But then we, we get into this new era where we get the scientific knowledge that race really isn't biological. Yes. Um, and yet this sort of ironically actually seems to recharge the sonic color line. So you've mentioned colorblindness earlier in our discussion, but can you kind of talk a little bit more about what colorblindness is when it when it began and and how it kind of amped up the the listening ear? Colorblindness is the the belief and it's the reigning, you know, to to you know, Siomi and Wynant, the the reigning racial formation of the U.S. in the, the late 20th century and, and up through our contemporary moment is the, the idea that race can be fundamentally ignored. Call me crazy, but I just don't see race. race. Um, and race. and, and that meta, the metaphor for colorblindness, right, is that then we, you know, if we can not see skin color um, as a factor, then it follows that um, a, a race-free society or a society free from racism will emerge. I guess I'm just the least racist person here. Okay. okay. That is impossible. Okay. And that, okay. as a matter of fact, that creates and enables a new layer of, of racism to emerge. And in fact, a more dangerous one, because then you, you can no longer talk overtly about race. You're only telling yourself that so you don't have to think about racism or confront your own prejudices. 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 The, the only way that the colorblindness could take root as an ideology is that the race has to transfer and move somewhere else. And that if sound allows racism to do that, if we can't, you know, if racial profiling is only thought of as a visual entity, you know, what does it mean to stop a car because of um, the kind of music that's playing? Or what does it mean to, to use, to use uh, accents to determine citizenship? This notion of colorblindness, it's an ostensibly liberal move, right? I mean, yes. but, but it really turns blackness into a choice that's the wrong choice, right? And, 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 yes. And something to be listened for, it becomes, well, are you going to join the great middle class standard way of being or aren't you? And if, and if you choose not to, there's something, something wrong with you. 
Yes, World War II and um, the Cold War was an essential part of this realignment of kind of body and, and voice that, that what we think of colorblindness as a, a 90s thing or even a 70s thing, that colorblindness was part of the, the effort by the, the American government to recruit people of color to the, the armed forces, that there's a kind of inclusion that's offered through colorblindness. Um, that if we, you know, if race is no longer a factor, then everyone can be American. But at the same time, skin color no longer bars you and visual appearance no longer bars you from being American. But, you know, maybe everyone can sound, quote unquote, American. Um, and, and then it becomes about this kind of disciplining of the voice, disciplining of listening to, to hear um, and have those kinds of, yeah, middle-class sensibilities. And, and yeah, this idea of kind of standardization through voice, speech, music, musical taste um, starts, it starts then and starts in that Cold War moment. Well, since you want to talk so very badly, I guess I'm not going to have much trouble getting you to talk into this machine. All right, now, who's going to be the first to try this out, huh? How about Morales? Hey, what's the matter with Morales? Sure, Morales, he loves to talk. Now, Tomita, suppose you step up here and try it. You against Morales because he don't talk good English? That has nothing to do with it. And one of the things that I, th I think is so interesting about your writing on this is that you connect this to the technology of the radio. Um, and so this is another one of those things where just like listening, you know, we generally think that technology is neutral but you really think a lot about the way that radio fed into colorblindness and this standardization of, of speech. There are very few representations visually, literarily in the radio research on Black listenership. And, and then thinking about, well, wait a minute, there's this overlying, you know, very, very entrenched discourse on the 30s and 40s as the golden age, quote unquote, golden age of American radio. From a humble beginning in a Pittsburgh garage to the sumptuous studios of the national radio networks in New York, Chicago, and Hollywood, these are the years we refer to as the golden age of radio. And it's important to, to understand how and why that came about and how and why it also seems to perfectly align with the, the worst and most segregated, both legally and, and uh, de facto, in, in U.S. history. And so how can we then refer to or think about this as, as a golden age, given this, this level of, of exclusion? The, the, the Make America Great Again campaign, I think, is very much tied to these nostalgic images of, of white radio listening in the, in the 40s and 50s. How were black artists actively excluded from from the radio and not just actively excluded, but their 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 performance and their their representation tightly controlled. Um, and the fact that the belief in technology as neutral, as just something that is, and, and thinking about radio itself as, you know, there's a huge discourse about radio as blind and connecting that to 
colorblindness, that you can't see race over the radio, and that it's this open, equitable space. And a lot of the Cold War propaganda was saying exactly that. Like, thank God our airwaves are free and open. They're not like Germany. But also it really ignores the way in which racial hierarchy was driving um, the industry and the way that the industry was thoroughly segregated down to you know, separate musicians unions for black and white musicians. Black musicians did not get nearly as much work as white musicians. Um, many, many people when I give presentations or teach are surprised to find out how black actors the dialect was scripted for them and the black actors, many black actors were quote unquote taught this, this way of speaking by white producers and that they're, again, I think that price of admission um, of being, you know, of getting working roles on the radio was having to, having to speak in, in dialect um, and this very dialect that no one speaks, um, having to speak this white imagined language of what blackness sounds like. Wedding ring right here in the street, laying right there. Mr. Marlon, Mr. Marlon, you know what, Mr. Marlon? Now, Beulah, take it easy, take it easy. Don't get so excited. Yes, but Mr. Marlon, you know what? Now, look, Beulah, relax. I'll go out and come in again. Yes, sir. Oh, Marlon, that's ridiculous. Well, she's got to learn to control herself, Aunt Alice. This will be good for her. She'll cool off now, and then she'll... Mr. Marlon, may I speak with you, sir? <laughs> Yes, Beulah. Now, you see what I mean? Yes, go ahead, Beulah. Well, when you hear what happened, I was bound to the grocery store. And then that, again, normalizing and naturalizing it for, uh, you know, a huge swath of, of American listeners. You know, so microphones weren't, weren't colorblind, as so many of the, the radio industry executives seem to feel. But the belief that they were is really telling, and it's shaped a lot of how we've come to understand race through sound that way. Well, in fact, the invisibility of the performer charges the racialized listening, right? You're, yes. You listen more closely for race because you don't know, you can't see what race the person is. You know, that's exactly it. And one of the great fears of radio producers was that Black performers would be indistinguishable from white performers. Um, and that's why... Wonderful Smith was fired from the Red Skeleton show that his voice, you know, because he had to slip, it was a sketch show and he was slipping in and out and changing characters so often. And um, that this racial boundary, this aural racial boundary was not, you know, could not be reliably maintained. And he was also himself um, asserting his agency and and constantly challenging it. Um, Which completely... Shows yeah. colorblindness to be a lie, right? Because from the, b- the very whole beginning, premise yes. here is that if you will s- just, you know, pay the price of admission and speak correctly um, and behave in a in a bourgeois middle class way, then then we will ignore your race and and all will be good. And then you you get performers who actually do this, and then that becomes so threatening to white identity that they have to be fired. 
Um, yeah. And I mean, in fact, the dialect from the very beginning, uh, Gavin Jones is a scholar that has been been working on this for, for many years. And white Southerness and black Southerness sounded alike, almost indistinguishable. And that's exactly where the dialect comes in to separate this sense of white and black, to draw those boundaries and to enforce and to, to create the sense of a difference. <laughs> Lena Horne, she's middle-class New York, Brooklyn, and she was one of those uh, artists that challenged the sonic color line and, and really challenging this enforcement of what blackness sounded like. Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere, stormy weather. Get my poor self together. I'm weary all the time. The time. Lena Horne's voice posed a dilemma in that her voice fit neither of the kind of stereotypically white nor stereotypically black. Love me or leave. Me or let me be lonely. You won't believe me, but I love you only. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else. It was this voice that um, challenged both of those, both of those impositions. It had a kind of racial fluidity. Lena Horne had a kind of, uh, many people described it as a kind of coldness to her voice, um, that she was, uh, was aloof and, and was, um, but yet even with this, the white press tried to racialize Lena as a blues singer. Um, and, and she was definitely not a blues singer um, and by you know, any, any stretch. And so what does it mean, again, that this listening ear then has to, to label her according to this, this um, you know, racialized, racialized music genre? And black listeners heard Lena Horne as a beautiful singer. And what does it mean then to kind of think about and, and discuss the beauty of her voice in relation to her body? And so there's a very different discourse about, about Lena Horne's voice in the white press and the black press. Someone is you. I intend to be independently blue. I want your love, don't want to borrow, have it today. Give back tomorrow, cause my love is your love. Your love is my love, my love is your love, no. The sonic color line is not about accuracy. It's not about an accurate description of 
diverse racial identities. It's actually about the reduction of race to the idea that there can be this firm boundary between blackness and whiteness. And then other racial identities then have to contend with these poles. The racial makeup and dynamics of the country are a lot more complex than this, and yet this is where we always seem to come back, right? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. This isn't to say that this is the only sonic color line or that the that race and sound does not um, impact Asian Americans and indigenous peoples. And as a matter of fact, and, and this can be a point of solidarity in terms of organizing, against racism and and inequity but yet like you said you know here we are again and how do we jam the signal of this black white binary and the inequity it's wreaked um, on all of us episode of Phantom Power. Thanks again to Jennifer Lynn Stover. You can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to some of the things we've heard and talked about at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Tell us what you thought about the show on Facebook or give us a shout on Twitter as Phantom Pod. Today's show featured music by Graham Gibson and Blue the Fifth. Our interns are Natalie Cooper, Nicole Keshock, and Adam Whitmer. And a special thanks and bon voyage to Nicole, who is graduating. Thanks for your great work on the new website. Phantom Power is made possible through a generous grant from the Miami University Humanities Center and the National Endowment for the Humanities. 